1-800-273-5735 and pressing option 2. or whatever amount fits your budget affirms your faith in the station that brings you information not easily found elsewhere and that helps your understanding of the issues of the day. Thanks for your support as you listen before you leap to KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. This is Quetzal Flores from the band Quetzal, and you're listening to KPFK 90.7 Los Angeles. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, how Israel isolated the U.S. politically. Assange rally in San Pedro. L.A. City shuffles 300 homeless between hotels, while 75,000 more are waiting in the streets. L.A. County psych ward restrains patients more than other hospitals. Biden calls Putin a crazy SOB. Stella Assange on Julian's extradition hearings. Was Alexei Navalny the Russian opposition leader? Caitlin Johnstone on freedom in the Western world. Latin America BRICS alignment before the G20 meeting. And news from outside the NATO info bubble. All this and more coming up. Good evening, I'm Rachel Brunke. A striking display of just how much the U.S. has become isolated became apparent today at the International Court of Justice in The Hague, where representatives of 52 countries are lining up this week to offer arguments examining the legality of Israel's occupation, settlement, and annexation of Palestinian territories, including the West Bank and East Jerusalem. The great majority of speakers have been scathingly critical of Israel and the U.S., South Africa likened Israel's treatment of the Palestinians to, quote, an extreme form of apartheid and genocide. Most representatives stated that multiple UN resolutions have already declared the Israeli occupation of Palestine illegal, but were never implemented. The United States once again came to Israel's defense, imploring the court not to issue a ruling that Israel must withdraw unconditionally from these territories. A State Department lawyer, Richard C. Weissach, argued that this would not take Israel's security into account. But America's was a lonely voice, with only Britain offering a similar argument. The truth is the very opposite, said Felipe Sanz, a human rights lawyer who spoke on behalf of the Palestinians. Noting that the court had already confirmed the Palestinians' right to self-determination, he said, quote, The function of this court, of these judges, of you— is to simply state the law, to spell out the legal rights and obligations that will allow a just solution in the future. While the U.S. is increasingly losing ground in the court of public opinion worldwide, President Joe Biden created outrage as he called Russian President Vladimir Putin a crazy SOB during a fundraiser in San Francisco yesterday, where he also claimed that the threat of nuclear conflict is less existential than the threat of climate change. 
Biden had previously called the Chinese president a dictator on two occasions. Just last week, the U.S. blamed the U.S. president blamed Putin and his thugs for the death of Alexei Navalny. Russian outlets stated that unhinged rhetoric of this sort is unworthy of heads of state and makes diplomacy increasingly difficult. Biden has also been criticized internationally for attending lavish fundraisers with champagne and caviar. While over 750,000 Gazans are facing starvation due to his unilateral policies supporting Israel's ongoing massacre of the Gazan civilian population. Over 100,000 Palestinians have been killed or severely wounded in Israeli strikes on the Gaza Strip since October 7th. Yesterday, San Pedro locals staged a rally in support of Julian Assange, whose extradition hearings came to an end. A a free Assange event was held at the office of the local independent newspaper Random Lengths News in San Pedro. I spoke to publisher James Allen and to others at the gathering organized by Code Pink San Pedro. Uh, My name is James Preston Allen. I'm the publisher of Random Lengths News. uh, And we've been publishing in the Los Angeles Harbor area for over... uh, type of publication that has been uh, significantly covering the issues surrounding the Port of Los Angeles from a progressive perspective. We actually published uh, one of the articles uh, about the Iraq war that was released by WikiLeaks uh, back in, I think, 2010 or 11. Uh, For the most part, the mainstream media didn't really pick up that, particularly the helicopter attack. But the, the real issue is, is that uh, Julian Assange is being prosecuted under a 1917 Espionage Act that comes from the American government, which was used precisely to intimidate critics of World War One. And the issue is twofold. A, Julian Assange is not an American citizen, and so the, uh, the Espionage Act doesn't apply to him. And B... There is an issue of whether or not the extradition treaty with the U.K. can actually be used for political purposes. The fact that the American government, under two different regimes, is still attempting to prosecute a foreign national who is not living in the United States, the, the problem becomes what this means for investigative reporting, not only nationally and inside the United States, but internationally, if that Espionage Act can be used by any foreign journalist anywhere in the world, and that becomes an even greater threat to journalism worldwide because other nation states can use that type of prosecution against any of their journalists or even an American journalist living abroad that's reporting on Turkey or Iraq or Iran or any any of those countries where press freedoms are much less than they are here today. And there's been such a strong consolidation of media in this country that there is already a, a tacit kind of censorship that is taking place by the corporate media and the independent journalists, the progressive independent press, 
is even more hard-pressed because of the shrinking newsrooms and all of that, and the, the mainstream press is even more compromised. Our government, post the Vietnam War, realized how influential a photograph of combat was, and has subsequently, every war since Vietnam, has censored or limited access to both the American press and foreign press in terms of reporting on any one of our wars, whether they were legitimate or not. Therein is really the problem. I mean, even to the extent in this country where you do not get to see the actual victims of mass shootings. In Australia, when they had their last mass shooting, somebody actually leaked the pictures of the victims to the press, and they were distributed widely. And the next thing that happened was the Australian government and the Australian people rose up and banned assault weapons. Banned them because of what they saw, what the, the result is. It changes how you think about gun violence. And as soon as we start allowing the public to actually see and hear the unvarnished truth, the better our democracy will be. The fact that younger people are more fluent in using social media and with the prevalence of uh, a lot of information on social media, what we see today is that the younger people are in fact the ones that are leading many of the protests and because it is so brutal and so inhumane, it is driving many of them to question their belief in this country, as they well should. The other war that uh, WikiLeaks was exposing was the war in Iraq, which was also an, a, a war based upon false premises. And the American people were lied to. The crime that Mr. Assange is accused of doing was the crime of telling the truth to the American people as well as the world. This country is better off handling the truth than they are believing in the lie. The truth is often hard to swallow because it varies so much from what the official lie is. San Pedro Neighbors for Peace and Justice. I was the person who listened to RT America quite a bit and he actually had a show at when Abby Martin about the time she was there, before she went to Telsur, every newspaper, major, Washington Post, New York Times, the London Guardian, they picked what they liked out of what Julian Assange was able to get in WikiLeaks. They published that stuff. Had they not published any of it, it wouldn't be much of an issue to anyone now, but they all did. But he, he's the one that's looking at the Espionage Act and going to go to jail for life. He didn't create any of this information. He just, with Bradley Manning, Chelsea Manning, was able to pull it out for the world, the physical condition that he's now in. He doesn't want to be interviewed. He doesn't, he's hurt. He's in he's damaged. Anybody saying, oh, we won't treat him as badly as they claim with this Espionage Act, and that's all said by people that I don't believe. We're a country that has a lot of state secrets. Uh, there are a lot of countries that do. England has a different state secrets act. It's probably worse than ours is, but uh, we have so much to hide. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. 77 unhoused residents have been moved from the LA Grand Hotel to the Mayfair Hotel, the acting director of interim housing for the Los Angeles Homeless Service Authority told a city council committee yesterday. 
Starting in April and May, a total of 356 people are supposed to be housed at the Mayfair Hotel. According to a recent homelessness emergency account report, which monitors funding for Bass's Inside Safe initiative, the council extended the lease on the LA Grand Hotel through July 31st, retaining 481 units for interim housing. Since June 2023, the Weingart Center has provided services at the hotel and will continue through the extension. The extension is estimated to cost $20 million, about $41,500 per person. Workers at the LA Grand Hotel, represented by SEIU Local 721, went on strike last week, calling on city officials to intercede on their behalf for better wages and support with the owner. Some workers also criticized the use of the hotel for Inside Safe. The City Council approved the acquisition and rehabilitation of the Mayfair Hotel in August 2023. The site, which was previously used for Project Room Key, like the LA Grand Hotel, will be used for Inside Safe. While the City Council extensively discussed these high profile maneuvers of shuffling, 350 unhoused people back and forth between hotels for millions of dollars, a remaining 46,000 unhoused people are surviving on the streets of L.A. on any given day. The greater L.A. homeless count of 2023 showed a 10% rise in homelessness compared to the prior year. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge I'm trying not to lose my head <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes It makes me wonder how I keep from going under Last Saturday, Los Angeles General Medical Center restrained patients in its psychiatric inpatient unit at the fourth highest rate of any such facility in the United States Newly released annual figures show This latest evidence of a persistent pattern has troubled local leaders and mental health advocates. Under federal law, hospitals are prohibited from restraining psychiatric patients except to prevent them from harming themselves or others. Patients are supposed to be strapped down only as a measure of very last resort after other steps fail. Experts warn it can traumatize patients, damage trust, and ramp up the risk of injuries. The L.A. County-run public hospital again had the highest rate of restraining psychiatric inpatients of any facility in California, according to data released this week by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. During the year 2022, L.A. General's inpatient psychiatric unit, which is located at the Augustus F. Hawkins Medical Health Center in Willowbrook, had a restraint rate 48 times higher than the national average. That's scandalous, said USC law professor Ellen Sachs, who has studied the use of restraint for decades. Sachs said the county should examine the practices of other facilities that use restraint much less frequently, including in other countries. Between 2018 and 2021, restraint rates at LA General ranked among the highest in the country. A Times review of county reports identified 200 cases in which psychiatric inpatients were restrained for a total of 24 hours or more in a month, including dozens restrained for the equivalent of a week or more. 
The rate doubled from 2020 to 2021, supposedly in an effort to control the spread of coronavirus, county officials said. COVID measures included halting group occupational and recreational therapy, probably contributed to the overuse of restraints. In reaction to the investigation's finding last year, the Health Services Department argued L.A. General could not be fairly ranked against other hospitals that did not accept the same kinds of challenging patients that it handles as a safety net hospital near Skid Row. Mental health experts took issue with many of those explanations, noting that the L.A. General rates were far higher than those for safety net facilities such as Zuckerberg and Bellevue. Some criticized the blanket practice of restraining patients while they are transported from one campus to another, calling it excessive. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. And it's time again for our fun drive and the time when you give forward. This probably isn't your first time listening to Rebel Alliance News, and we're so glad you're here. Where else can you get this kind of uncensored news? Not the infotainment that other stations are going to bring you, but real uncensored, hard-hitting news. We can do this because we don't take money from large corporations like NPR does. We are truly independent. Instead, you are our sponsors. Your donation makes great programming possible and helps us keep going. And it's more needed than ever. So please go to the phone now and dial 818-985-5735 and donate to Rebel Alliance News. And if you donate a little more, we offer you an amazing thank you gift, a best-off compilation, compilation of our programming on a USB stick. For over six decades, KPFK and Pacifica has collected the voices of dissent, of conscience, the voices for human rights and against racism and war. This is an archive you can get nowhere else, and it can be yours for owning $250. Please get it for yourself, for your children, for your school, your community. Share this knowledge. The speeches of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Leonard Peltier, Occupy Wall Street, and many others that mainstream media tries to silence. Please go to your phone now and call 818-985-5735 and say you want to donate to Rebel Alliance News. If you want to keep us on the air, please donate now, 818-985-5735, or go online at www kpfk.org so that you will still know tomorrow what's going on in the city, this country, and the world. Do it for your kids and save and protect independent media. KPFK is the last holdout in an increasingly censored, streamlined media landscape. Call 818-985-5735 and donate now or go to kpfk.org. You can also donate your car, motorcycle, your house, your castle. And if you're one of the lucky people who can afford a little more, donate more, because many of us are hurting and can't donate, even if they wanted to. Please put KPFK also in your will and create a beautiful legacy. Let's stand together and keep this amazing radio station going, for all our sake, forever. Thank you so much.
Yesterday marked the last day of Julian Assange's hearing at the London Royal Court. His wife, Stella Assange, spoke at the rally outside the court. Amazing, not just the turnout this evening coming here to Downing Street, but also over the past 48 hours. It's been incredible. Every time I got to court, I was greeted by this incredible, supportive crowd that was cheering us on. And uh, I, I told Julian all about how, how much support he has, and also how much attention the media has given this case this time around. The world is watching, and finally. There's a realization about what this is really about, which is an attack on the public's right to know. A country's attempt to further their impunity and their cover-ups and continue to kill with impunity without the threat of a media that will scrutinize them, of a public that will demand change. Everything turns on the outcome of this case. Whether states can criminalize journalism and put journalists in prison like they've been doing in the UK with an Australian citizen, a publisher who's won many, many awards, and they've stuck him in the deepest, darkest hole of the UK prison system, and the US threatens to put him in the deepest, darkest hole of the US prison system for 175 years. Shame. This case is about whether state crimes can continue unpunished, unscrutinized, we don't have a decision today. Julian's life is at severe risk every single day he is in prison. He is a political prisoner. He is the world's most famous political prisoner. Now, whatever happens in the coming days, we can't know. But we can know that we will be there for Julian, for our own democracy, our own future, our own ability to change policy, to change decisions, to change governments. Because if there's no scrutiny, we can't make an informed decision about who we elect. Our rights are at stake, but Julian's life is at stake. If he is extradited, he will lose his life. He will be killed by the country that has been plotting his assassination. And the court heard how the United States, under the previous administration, which may be the next administration, had plotted to assassinate him who had plotted to poison him, who had plotted to kidnap him. And shame on those who murder journalists. Shame on those who are afraid of the truth. We're better than that. The UK courts are also under scrutiny. They are on notice that the country that is trying to extradite him has planned to murder him. They don't deny it. The whole time we were in court, the other side somehow avoided to talk about what the, what the documents Julian published revealed. They didn't talk about the war crimes, they didn't talk about their torture and rendition program. Free Assange! Free Assange! Free Assange! Free Assange! After Stella Assange, journalist Taylor Hudick laid out details of the case. Inside the courtroom today, the Crown Prosecution Service, representing the U.S. government, presented their rebuttal to the defense arguments that were presented yesterday. Claire Dobbin for the prosecution spent quite a bit of time addressing the association between Julian Assange and whistleblower Chelsea Manning. It was Manning who leaked documents on the Iraq and Afghanistan wars to Julian Assange, which he then published through WikiLeaks. 
Now, on this point, Dobbin, for the prosecution, made several attempts to separate Assange's activities from that of a journalist, stating that Assange encouraged and solicited Manning to provide more information and that he publicly asked others to provide material to WikiLeaks. Now, of course, this is news gathering techniques that journalists engage in all the time. You encourage your sources to provide more information and to seek to criminalize this behavior will set a dangerous global precedent. One must also ask, is it right for judges, politicians, and state officials to determine who is and who is not a journalist? The prosecution repeatedly stated that WikiLeaks published the names of informants in their releases and thus potentially put lives at risk. This was strongly countered by the defense in which they argued that WikiLeaks actually took the time to redact the names. He went to great lengths to reduce harm. Other organizations were the first to publish the documents unredacted. Even the judge today made a point to the prosecution stating that by the time WikiLeaks had published this information, redacted by the way, the publications were already available on several websites. So this does raise the question, why is WikiLeaks being prosecuted? This argument points to a very important point here that this is in fact a selective prosecution. The defense made another very strong point stating that the prosecution is relying on the U.S.-U.K. extradition treaty to prosecute Assange, but they ignore the safeguards and protections within the treaty, namely Article 4, which prevents extradition for political offenses. But the prosecution instead cites law and does not include a provision which prevents extradition for political offenses. Now, if Assange is extradited to the United States, he would be tried in the Eastern District, Court of Virginia, where no national security defendant has ever won a case. It is highly likely that the jury would be comprised of members of the intelligence community, their family members and friends. This has also been discussed by former CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou. Therefore, the jury would be highly prejudiced against Assange. Given that he is charged with espionage, he would not be able to provide a public interest defense. The following is a comment. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. The following is a commentary by award-winning journalist Caitlin Johnstone. The Julian Assange extradition appeal hearing concluded yesterday with no date yet set for a verdict. This is a historic case and they're given months of notice to prepare and yet the errors persist and always fight, fall on the side of limiting transparency. At a certain point, you have to rule out incompetence and assume it's deliberate. It's wild to think we could be close to seeing Assange whisked away and disappeared from public view for the rest of his life because he committed the crime of good journalism. Keep in mind when you read that the U.S. is attempting to jail a journalist for exposing war crimes, that because of Gaza, you actually now know what war crimes look like in real life. War crimes are the absolute worst of crimes, where the most powerful prey on the most vulnerable. We absolutely must be able to expose them. Israeli media are now reporting that 10 hostages were killed as a result of Israeli attacks on buildings where the IDF knew hostages were located. Israel supporters can go ahead and stop babbling about hostages when trying to justify the attack on Gaza. It's never been about saving hostages. Israel-Palestine isn't complicated. You just support colonialism and genocide. 
The U.S. centralized empire is currently backing a literal genocide and deliberating whether it should begin extraditing and incarcerating foreign journalists for reporting on its war crimes, while continuing to condescendingly wag its finger at the global south over human rights. Australia is now doubling its fleet of warships in a buildup aimed at China. I write about U.S. war machine so much because it's the most destructive force on this planet by far, and it's harmful to humanity as a whole. But I've also got a personal stake in it as an Australian. I oppose our being used as a pawn in Washington's future war with China. The U.S. and Israel are doing everything they can to instigate a wider war in the Middle East, while leaders in Iran and Hezbollah do everything they can to avoid one. It's so glaringly, blatantly obvious which side is the aggressor here. Once you decide a drastic geopolitical event agenda must be forced through, no matter what you have to do or who you have to kill, you're guaranteed a lot of bloodshed. And that's what we're seeing with the agendas of both U.S. planetary hegemony and the maintenance of a Jewish ethnostate. Humanity is in a state of mass delusion and confusion. And if you go along with the group, any group, in your thinking and understanding, you will surely be led astray. You've got to stand on your own two feet and take full responsibility for your understanding and perspective on all matters, even when it means standing alone against the crowd. One thing a lot of people miss about the rising authoritarian in, is in our society is that such measures are not being rolled out with the goal of constructing a new dystopia that will look wildly different from what we see today, but to lock in our current dystopia in place. Many skeptically-minded individuals look at emerging trends like rising internet censorship, the push to eliminate online anonymity, the war on critical journalism the rise of digital currencies, increasingly sophisticated surveillance, facial ID, artificial intelligence, and the normalization of robots in the police force. And they imagine these things will be used to create some kind of dystopia where human behavior is forced by tyrannical overlords to look wildly different from the way our current civilization looks. We're already working, consuming, and voting in perfect alignment with the interests of the powerful, and for the most part, we're thinking and speaking as if the powerful want us to as well. This is because our education and media systems have success successfully trained us to act in ways our rulers want us to act. So authoritarian measures aren't being quietly implemented with the goal of changing our current systems, but as a prophylactic measure in case we ever decide we're fed up with the exploitative and oppressive nature of those systems and want to start revolting. They're not preparing to change the nature of the prisons or the way it's being run. They're just bolstering the locks on the doors. Our rulers have begun, already achieved what they were trying to achieve. This mind-controlled dystopia where everyone thinks, speaks, acts, votes, works, and consumes in accordance with the interests of the rich and the powerful is everything the rich and powerful could possibly want from us. This civilization is saturated in mass-scale psychological manipulation geared towards tricking us into believing that this is what we want, that we built this horrifying dystopia ourselves, that it serves our interests, and that this is what freedom looks like. 
but we only believe such things because we were trained to believe them. This is not what freedom looks like. Humanity could be so, so much more than this, and it should be. We should not be locked into these abusive com competition-based models wherein nations compete with other nations. Political factions compete with other political factions. Scientists compete with other scientists. Workers compete with other workers. We should not be clawing our way to the top of the rat race and stepping on the heads of our brothers and sisters, trying to scramble also to the top. We should be collaborating together for the common good of all humankind and for the good of this planet's biosphere upon which we depend for its survival. Right now, the only thing stopping us from having a healthy and harmonious world where nobody's left out and everybody has enough is the fact that skillful manipulators have slyly constructed this competition-based dystopian prison around us without our noticing. The sooner we start noticing, the sooner we can start plotting our escape. And the sooner the better, because the prison's security systems are only getting tougher and tougher to break through. Rebel Alliance News. I wanna watch this CIA. Married to the money, keep my maiden name. Hey. Alexei Navalny's death in a Russian prison camp has greatly upset the West. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Glenn Greenwald gives up some background about Navalny, his importance for Russia, and unveils an unknown part of his history. It'd be one thing if Alexei Navalny were some sort of gigantic figure in Russia. The only reason you know the name Alexei Navalny is because the West has turned him into this mythological figure. There was a documentary made about him. It won the Academy Award for Best Documentary in 2022. All of Hollywood stood and cheered for this documentary about the hero Nalbani. In Russia, he's a minuscule figure. He's not some giant of the Russian political stage. He is useful to the West for propagandistic purposes, and that is why you have this incredibly inflated imagery of what he is. Here's Reuters on February 21st of 2018, Putin nemesis Navalny barred from the election tries political siege. Remember when the proof of Russia's totalitarianism was that the opposition leader was barred from the ballot and then imprisoned? Isn't that a situation similar to what we have in the United States? Isn't it the case that the primary political opponent of the current government in Washington is in the process of being stricken from the ballot as a result of judges and Democratic Party leaders bringing cases to have them struck from the ballot and is in the process of being criminally prosecuted by Democratic partisan prosecutors like Fannie Willis in Georgia and Alvin Bragg in New York and the Obama DOJ. Why is it that when we hear that Russia is banning from the ballot the primary political opponent of Vladimir Putin and then trying to imprison him, we make one conclusion, but then we hear in the United States that the exact same thing is happening, but an actual significant political figure, not like Nalbani, but Donald Trump, who was actually the president already, narrowly lost in 2020, is leading almost every opinion poll for 2024. When he is struck from ballots, when he is threatened with imprisonment, a completely different narrative about that is presented, even though they're the same acts. 
And I know a lot of people intuitively believe this is what propaganda does, this is what tribalism does, is that we just inherently believe that when it seems like the two things are the same, the fact that one is happening in the United States and the other is happening in Russia means they're completely different. Question though whether or not that's what you believe because you're an American, because you were born in the United States, because you've been told from childhood that that's how you should see the world. Here is Reuters. Now this is not RT, this is not Sputnik, this is not Tucker Carlson, whoever you want to dismiss as some sort of pro-Russian source. This is Reuters in 2018, which said the following, quote, opinion polls put Navalny's support at less than 2%. And many Russians who still get much of their news from state TV say they do not even know who he is. He's incredibly more famous and more notable and more popular in Western political capitals than he is in Russia. The idea that he's a threat to Vladimir Putin in any way is laughable. Let's try and remember as well a couple of things about who Alexei Navalny is, the new hero of Western liberals. From Yahoo News in February of this year, Alexei Navalny's quote, far-right racist past brought back in spotlight after Putin critic's death. As world leaders pay tribute to Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, some have drawn attention to some inconvenient aspects of his past. Really, what's inconvenient? Quote, as Western politicians pay their respects, some more uncomfortable aspects of Navalny's career have been brought back to the surface. Quote, Navalny took part in the Russian march, an annual demonstration that draws ultranationalists, including some who adopt swastika-like symbols. Oh my, that is uncomfortable. Quote, he has never apologized for his earlier xenophobic videos or his decision to attend the Russian march. Raman appeared to be referring to a notorious video from 2007 in which Navalny appears to compare Muslim immigrants in Russia to cockroaches as he advocated for gun ownership. In another video, he is dressed as a dentist and appears to compare migrants in Moscow to tooth cavities, Radio Free Europe reports. He says, quote, I recommend full sanitization. Everything in our way should be carefully but decisively removed through deportation. Shortly before releasing both clips, Navalny was expelled by the liberal Yabloko party over his, quote, nationalist activities. Having participated in the Russian March annual rally associated with ultranationalist far-right groups chanting slogans such as Russia for ethnic Russians. Now, anyone in the United States who has a past like that, who called immigrants cockroaches, who had handing out guns as a way to exterminate them, as cockroaches should be exterminated, who attended an actual neo-Nazi march, I don't think they would be described as having an inconvenient or uncomfortable past. And yet it is amazing, just like we find in Ukraine, with all the neo-Nazi militias in Ukraine that the American liberals love and want to arm, that if you're somebody who doesn't love the Democratic Party in the United States, you will get called a Nazi and a fascist and a white nationalist. And American liberals and Western liberals were trying to have you barred from the internet and fired from your job and basically expelled from decent society in every way. And then Western liberals encounter actual Nazis, people with actual neo-Nazi ideology, with actual overt ties to white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups, and they want to embrace them. They want to arm them. The hero Nalvani. Here's the hero Nalvani in 2007. Здравствуйте. Сегодня мы поговорим о борьбе с насекомыми. Никто из нас не застрахован. Alexei Navalny, certified specialist. Hello, today we have to talk about insect control. No house is safe from cockroach infestation. Ooh, where a fly gets in through an open window. And there's all kinds of demons being shown as he says this. We all know the cure. 
against flies, a fly swatter, a slipper against a roach. But what to do if cockroaches are too big and flies too aggressive? In such cases, I recommend a handgun, as he shows a handgun. Yes to allowing firearms. Now, anybody involved in an ad like that in the United States would be deemed a Nazi for the rest of his life. The Western media looks at this, and because of his propagandistic value, they turn him into some kind of, like, civil liberties leader. And, of course, the same exact thing has been happening for the last two years in Ukraine. For the last decade in the Western press, every time the Azov Battalion has been referenced, it has been described as a neo-Nazi group, a group with Nazi ideology. And to this day, you see Azov Battalions, and they have all kinds of neo-Nazi insignia. Here's how the New York Times tried to grapple with this in June of 2023. Quote, Nazi symbols on the Ukraine's front lines highlight a thorny issue of history. Do you love these words? Oh, uncomfortable, inconvenient, thorny when they're talking about actual neo-Nazis? Quote, the troops' use of patches bearing Nazi emblems risk fueling Russian propaganda and spreading imagery that the West has spent a half century trying to eliminate. So far, the imagery has not eroded international support for the war. It has, however, left diplomats, Western journalists, and advocacy groups in a difficult position. Calling attention to the iconography risks playing into Russian propaganda, saying nothing allows it to spread. Even Jewish groups and anti-hate organizations that have traditionally called out hateful symbols have stayed largely silent. Now, that is how the New York Times has grappled with the fact that we are arming actual neo-Nazi militia groups in Ukraine. Now, there is a similar case to Navani dying in prison, although this is a case where the person who died in prison was an American citizen. His name is Gonzalo Lira. And you may recall that Gonzalo Lira was in Ukraine. He married a Ukrainian woman in 2016. And he was an outspoken opponent of President Zelensky and of the war. And because of that, he was twice arrested. The U.S. government never once uttered a word to protest about this American citizen being arrested, even though he posted a video pleading for the government to help. And he warned that if he were arrested a second time, he would die in a Ukrainian prison. And he did die in a Ukrainian prison, just as he predicted at the age of 55. And he was in prison solely because he criticized President Zelensky in the NATO U.S. narrative about the war. Now, you would think that when it happens to an American citizen who dies in a Ukrainian prison after criticizing President Zelensky, that all these people who are so deeply concerned with civil liberties in Russia might have something to say about that. And they killed an American citizen for the crime of speaking out against the war. And there's barely any media coverage of this because that has anti-propagandistic value because it shows what a joke it is to claim that Ukraine is a democratic state. These people do not care in the slightest about civil liberties. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. This year's G20 summit of foreign ministers opened in Rio de Janeiro yesterday. The days leading up to the opening saw some jostling between Russia on one side and the U.S. on the other, with China playing honest broker. Meanwhile, Latin America continues to grapple with U.S. domination and sanctions. Don DeBar has more. The G20 opened in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil on Wednesday. To discuss that and the implications both for the Western Hemisphere and the global economy, we speak with Stephen Sefton, who is in Managua, Nicaragua today, and with Camila Escalante, who is in Havana, Cuba. 
Stephen, first, what do you see going on here? Well, this visit by Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov of the Russian Federation is very important, although he, he makes regular visits to the region and has done over the years. And this time he focused on um, Cuba and Venezuela prior to going to Rio de Janeiro for the meeting of the G20 country foreign ministers. And in Cuba, Lavrov said that Cuba was their most important uh, strategic partner in the region which is a big deal coming from the Russian Federation. And they uh, committed to giving all the support they could to Cuba, um, faced with the 60-year-old blockade by the United States, a genocidal blockade that has destroyed the lives of, of Cubans for decades and cost the country hundreds of billions of, of dollars over the years. So that was a very important visit for, for Lavrov in terms, in terms of Cuba. And Cuba itself has been involved in initiatives trying to open up relationships with the Eurasian Economic Union, of which, of course, Russia is a leading member. That whole area is very interesting, and we should keep an eye on that over the next few months. And after his visit to Havana, um, Sergei Lavrov went to Venezuela. And again, he said, Venezuela and Russia have a very important strategic relationship and promise to continue supporting Venezuela, in particular against the um, unilateral coercive measures applied both by the United States and the European Union. And he expressed solidarity between Venezuela and Russia on that score, because Russia too, as we know, has been subject to thousands of sanctions and has had its assets stolen uh, by the United States and its European allies, just as Venezuela has. So that, and those two meetings were very important. And there was almost certainly a military cooperation component to both of those meetings. And then um, after Caracas, Sergei Lavrov went to Rio de Janeiro, and there he had met with foreign ministers from across the region. He met with the foreign minister of Paraguay, which is an extremely interesting moment because Paraguay is generally regarded as having a very right-wing government. And that's just another sign that Russia is very interested in uh, maintaining its relationships with countries across the ideological spectrum. They were almost certainly talking about cooperation in terms of Russian fertilizer, but also possibly uh, about Russian, the Russian nuclear industry, because Russia has a lot of nuclear industry projects in the region, one of which is with Bolivia, and he met with the Bolivian foreign minister. And apart from uh, the Bolivian and Paraguayan foreign ministers, he yeah. also met with uh, BRICS partner Brazil, Brazil's foreign minister. All of that's very interesting in terms of developments in the region, in particular given the fact that Russian diplomacy has um, successfully uh, persuaded the Ecuadorian government to reverse its decision to send its Russian-made military equipment to the United States which was obviously going to end up in Ukraine. Perhaps Camilla can talk about that. Yeah, Camilla, what's your take on this generally first? Well, first of all, this is a very good way of exemplifying how important this region actually is for this new multipolar world. Because one of the things that is you know, slightly related is just the fallout right now or the, the response to just a couple of words uttered by president of Brazil, Lula da Silva. He said a couple of things about the Zionist occupation and genocide of Gaza right now, and it caused a massive storm. It's unbelievable. Right now, everybody is coming out in solidarity with the Brazilian president because he was declared persona non grata 
by Israel. It just shows that, you know, all of these different countries and leaders have been slowly speaking out. It's four and a half months later. Finally, the Brazilian president says something about it. And now it has completely broken the internet and shaken the world, even though it was a little bit lukewarm, some of the things that the president has said in terms of his position on the genocide. But it it just shows how much importance the world gives Brazil and some of these other countries of our region. And of course, repeatedly, the Brazilian or the Russian foreign minister has had held meetings. Also, the presidential advisor of Lula has gone to Moscow himself, Celso Amorim. So it just shows how important our region is. But going back to the strength and determination of Russian diplomacy, Russian diplomacy was in the last couple of weeks able to reverse the decision of Ecuador to transfer arms to Ukraine via the United States. It was a decision that had been made in January, announced by the president and his foreign minister, the president, Daniel Noboa of Ecuador. They said that they were going to get rid of these old Soviet weapons, send them to United States on, on Washington's request, and that the U.S. would be sending them brand new U.S. weapons. And it was a huge scandal back in 2023, early 2023, a year ago, the commander of Southcom and also the chancellor of Germany, uh, Olaf Scholz, They had gone around trying to coerce these different Latin American countries. They say it's about nine countries that have these uh, Russian weapon systems or, or components or whatever it is to send these Soviet weapons to Ukraine in exchange for U.S. weapons. And almost all of the countries declined. I believe the only country to sort of participate in that transfer was the coup regime in Peru. They complied with NATO's demand to send those weapons. And now Russia has not only managed to nullify or reverse that decision, they're actually, Russia and Ecuador are now discussing options for repairing Russian-made military hardware that belongs to the Ecuadorian armed forces inventory that's being reported today by TASS. So it's really interesting because this is a country, Ecuador, that is completely just, you know, the doormat turning into a landing pad of the United States and South America. And it seems like even the U.S. can't convince them to send to hand over their weapons. And so it seems as if this has been a very fruitful visit of the foreign minister of Russia. Let me read a little bit from a statement that came from China's foreign ministry, Mao Ning. There's a spokesperson there. In in essence, there were calls, uh, certainly by the United States, but perhaps through other mouths, to uh, use the G20 to condemn Russia over Ukraine and uh, to discuss the situation in the Middle East, which I assume means some defensive, forward defensive Israel. Uh, and China said, um, in essence, the G20 is the premier forum for international economic cooperation, not a platform for resolving geopolitical and security issues. And she said basically that there's all these urgent you know, economic problems facing the world, and, and yet to, to use this as a forum for further arm wrestling over these geopolitical things is contraindicated. There was a joint statement by um, foreign Minister Lavrov, seconded by President Maduro, in which they affirmed very strongly that the G20 and that uh, should condemn the unilateral coercive economic measures, right. and that the G20 is is not a platform for that kind of shouldn't be a platform for that kind of um, illegal activity. That's what it seems like. And so, you know, going forward, it looks like this kind of political and, and diplomatic initiative, you know, baselined both to the, the military and, and dealing with the, you know, offensive nature of the sanctions that they all 
are suffering from is another another evidence of uh, the game changing. I'd, I'd like to thank you both for joining us and uh, speak with you again next week. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, here are your international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere. Supporters of WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange have marched on Downing Street in London, demanding his immediate release. The case at the UK High Court is the 52-year-old's final attempt to appeal his extradition to the US. However, judges have opted against an immediate decision. RT's Steve Sweeney reports from London. We've now reached the end of the two-day court hearing into Julian Assange's potential extradition to the United States, where he faces 175 years in prison under the Espionage Act. Now his defence team, his lawyers, argued in court that uh, the judges in the original case had not taken properly into consideration an alleged plot cooked up in the White House uh, with the CIA to assassinate Mr. Assange on the streets of London. They said that this cast serious doubts over the assurances given by the United States about his health and well-being should he be extradited. Uh, These assurances have been dismissed by Amnesty International as not worth the paper that they are written on. Now, there's been, uh, there are speeches taking place now behind us from a a range of uh, Assange's supporters. We've heard that the judges have uh, deferred their decision. They're not taking the decision today. So that verdict will be announced at a later date. And we're hearing that that could possibly be March the 4th. Amnesty International has labelled Washington's reasoning to reject Julian Assange's extradition appeal as, quote, deeply flawed. The human rights group spoke in the immediate aftermath of the second and final day of hearings at the UK High Court. They were firstly arguing that it doesn't matter whether or not this case was political, that actually the UK is obliged to extradite either way. This is really a deeply flawed argument for two reasons. One is that Julian Assange was doing something that publishers and journalists do all the time. They receive classified material from a confidential source that exposes war crimes, crimes against humanity, torture, really grave issues in the public interest, and they publish them. And and to prosecute a journalist under the uh, the guise of an espionage act for doing something like this is inherently political. The second reason why this is really quite a flawed argument for the US to make is that there's an agreement between the US and the UK. There's a mutual extradition agreement, and it's absolutely clear that political offences can't be the subject of extradition requests. A trade union in India says its members have refused to handle any cargo of weapons destined for delivery to Israel. This after reports said an Indian conglomerate has supplied killer drones to the Israeli regime for the war on Gaza. Munawar Zaman reports from New Delhi. Israel's war in Gaza has sent repercussions beyond the region, with many people across the world voicing their support for Palestinians in the war-torn territory. In India, port and dock workers from various major ports called on their members not to handle any of the ships carrying weapons and other military equipments to Israel. The workers' general secretary said the union will not handle any cargo bound to kill innocent people. The decision was taken in accordance with the resolution passed by international parent organization, World Federation of Trade Unions. Experts say it's an unprecedented act of courage and support for the cause of Palestine, as almost all public debates or protests regarding the conflict are banned in India. The port workers are a part of labor unions that said in a statement 
they would always stand against war and killings of innocent people, especially women and children. According to T. Narendra Rao, General Secretary of the Water Transport Workers Federation of India, the move is a strong condemnation of the Israeli regime committing genocide in Gaza with absolute impunity. First of all, our central demand must be for a ceasefire. It's for the Palestinians to decide what is their right to self-determination. We have to put pressure on ceasefire. One thing that this settler colonial regime of Israel cannot do is what other settler colonial regimes uh, did. And I'm talking about the United States, North and South uh, America, Oceania, Australia. There they were able to finish off the indigenous population. Okay. That will not happen. And the resistance of the Palestinian people, generation after generation after generation, is something remarkable within the occupied territories. The Israeli war has caused human sufferings beyond imagination, claiming tens of thousands of lives, mostly children and women. Experts blame inaction and impunity for the raging Israeli genocide and say the Arab countries should do more for a solution. The difference, if you like, is that at least in the Arab countries, whatever the Arab governments do, because they haven't done enough themselves. Verbal, yes, condemnation, etc., fine. But have they used the oil weapon? No. Have they broken their, uh, those which support a part of the Abraham Accords? No. The Indian government has followed this kind of approach and wants to continue its relationship with uh, Israel. The statement from the Indian Port Union workers comes amid reports of Indian conglomerate Adani Group manufacturing and delivering killer drones to Israel. The deal has not been publicly acknowledged by Tel Aviv or New Delhi. The union has called the workers from across the globe to stand with the demand of free Palestine, urging for an immediate ceasefire to avoid further loss of lives and escalation beyond borders. The Israeli onslaught on Gaza is in its fifth month, and now new long-term consequences are unfolding in the territory. Moti Abu Musabe reports from Deir al-Bala. As Israel continues to press ahead with its genocidal war in Gaza, more painful details emerge regarding the long-term consequences Palestinians face. Especially children, psychological traumas are among the long list of issues civilians in the coastal strip grapple with. This war is the most brutal war we have ever lived. It deeply impacted the entire Gaza population, particularly the children. They become very scared and fearful when they hear any explosion or airstrike. We are experiencing unprecedented psychological traumas. The absence of international organizations has made it difficult to deal with the needs of Gazans. As a matter of fact, what Palestinian children have been witnessing in the last four months is unprecedented. This hadn't happened over the recent wars against Palestinians. Unbelievably, 70% of Gaza's housing units have been partially or completely destroyed. Vast majority of houses were pummeled as they were inhabited by civilians. We've been in the tent in Rafah for two months. My children became sick and tired. Then we decided to flee to an Arwa school in Deir al-Bala. Once we arrived there, the Israeli warplane targeted the mosque that was nearby. We got severely injured. My little son was severely affected. His life was completely changed. He can't eat or sleep well. We hope this ends soon. Children experience the same issues in evacuation centers elsewhere in the devastated strip. They are repeatedly displaced and experience catastrophic conditions. 
the only news they hear is the news of massacres and killings. All these details will be ingrained deeply in their souls and surely they will carry them for life. Before this war started, we used to live normally. We had our life. We used to go to school, play with our friends, and sleep well in our homes. After this war began, we lost everything. We hear only the sound of the missiles and airstrikes. We don't sleep or eat well. We know nothing about the rest for families. Why this happens to us? It's quite difficult for anyone outside Gaza to believe that many Palestinian children have not yet recovered from a trauma they suffered in 2014 during Israeli aggression on Gaza. Apparently, the Palestinian children will take years and years to heal from the severe trauma and psychological problems they sustained before the eyes of the ignorant international community. And that's all in today's international news from non-NATO media.